Amen. Well, good morning again. Our scripture passage this morning comes again from the book of Isaiah. Now, if you were with us over Easter, you'll know that we uh, moved through a later part in the book of Isaiah. We picked up Isaiah 53 and worked through that. Uh, And this morning, we're going to jump back to where we were before Easter and move to Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10, verse 20 through 34. And just to catch us up briefly on where we are, a lot happens in the book of Isaiah, and it's it's easy to get lost. Uh, Maybe you're feeling that this morning. You pick up Isaiah 10, and you Say, okay, this is, this is new. I don't know what's happening. And that can happen because there's so many sort of rhythms that Isaiah moves through. Um, these pictures of foretelling beautiful future realities, like in Isaiah 2, where God's people sort of stream towards Zion and it's all wonderful and good. And then these moments where we look at judgment. And we saw that last week, or last time we were in Isaiah 10, where there is judgment against Assyria. And now Assyria comes into the picture. Why? Because King Ahaz decided that he wasn't going to trust God, but he was going to pull in the Assyrians. That was his hope. And the Assyrians come to, in the future, will come to, to help in this situation, but ultimately they bring judgment on God's people. And that is concluded. And, and we're left with a question as Assyria is sort of hewed down, as trees are cut down, there's sort of this wasteland in the verses before this passage. What happens to God's people? Where is there some hope for God's people? What is going to happen in this changing world, this changing sort of book where things keep coming in and out, judgment and relief? What is going to happen? Where is God going to be and where is some hope? And that's our desire is to see that this morning. So would you stand for the reading of God's word? We'll read Isaiah 10, beginning in verse 20 through the end of the chapter. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For through your people Israel, for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt." And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aoth. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass at Gibeah. They lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lashah, O poor Anathoth. Madmena is in flight. The inhabitants of Gabim fly for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickest of the forest with his axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your words here. 
Lord, as we turn to them, I pray that you would give us clarity and insight. Lord, that we would see that there is hope for us in this passage. Lord, that we would see your character and that we would learn together to lean more on Christ our Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The world is changing. It's not a statement that really any of us need any sort of context for. We probably agree with that. But I saw one headline this week that captured how the world is changing. It was about Tupperware. Everybody know Tupperware? Those plastic containers that maybe you still have stashed away somewhere? Well, apparently Tupperware is in trouble. They're not sure. The headline was, substantial doubt that they'll be able to continue in business. Why? Because they haven't adjusted to a changing world. Um, Their model until recently was still the, the Tupperware party, where you got together and you bought containers. And while that worked maybe 50 years ago, today it doesn't seem to be as effective. And also, maybe everybody's just inheriting Tupperware that's still around, and somebody, nobody needs to, there's no planned obsolescence with uh, Tupperware. In any case, the world is changing. And sometimes it's hard to respond. And when we come to a, a book like Isaiah and a moment in Isaiah like this, we see that things are changing uh, for God's people. The Assyrians are are coming, the Assyrians have been relied on, but now the Assyrians are in this place where they're going to be struck, and and there's there's these swirling realities, and they're going to be a remnant, and there's going to be exile that's not quite in this text, but is coming, and and what is all going to happen? How are they going to respond to the changing, swirling world that they find themselves in? It's not just a question for the Assyrians, is it? It's a question for you and I and for God's people. How do we navigate a world that is changing? And this doesn't just have to be sort of the big headlines that we say, you know, the world is falling apart, but it's also the normal ebbs and flows of our daily life. Um, Adding another child to your life, changing a job, getting married. All of these changes are things that cause us to say, how am I gonna live faithfully in the midst of this? Because often the, the stressors, the pressures of a changing world cause us to respond in a lot of ways that aren't aren't helpful. A lot of ways that ultimately aren't biblical, aren't true to what God has for us. And here in this reality of a, of, a, of a remnant of Israel that will return, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment, God gives us maybe a, a blueprint, maybe an outline for how we can respond to a world that is, that is changing. How will we live as a remnant? Because the posture of God's people here in this passage is, is the same as, as you and I. We'll use the language here of, of remnant. What is a remnant? Remnant is just a, a part that's left. And in part, there's sadness when we see a remnant of Israel. It reminds us of maybe the, the golden age when things were better, when they were following God's, God's ways. But then there's also grace, that God preserves a remnant. And that's where you and I come in. As we look at the New Testament and we see Apostle Paul describing that even today there is a remnant chosen by grace. It's this reality that God will always preserve for himself a group of people. And it's that group of people that God preserves that are talked about in this text. And as we look at it, we can learn what it means to live as a remnant. How do we live this way? Well, it begins in the very first verse that we read in verse 20. And it's this idea of leaning. Now, what's happening here? It says, in that day, the remnant of Israel. Now, in that day is is a term that's used often in the Old Testament. And it means... Primarily, this, not this specific date on the calendar that we're anticipating, but a moment in time where God comes in and with great power does the things that he has promised to do. In a sense, it's the day that God shows up. 
And so that is what we see here. In that day, the day where God shows up in his justice, in his righteousness, in his holiness, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. Now, who is the one who struck them? Well, it's, it's Assyria. It's Assyria who at a time they thought would be a help to them, but now has come to strike them. They won't lean on him anymore. And it, it might sound maybe like a, a dark irony that someone would, would lean on the one who strikes them. But we'll see as we, as we get further into this that that's often what you and I do. We lean on things that ultimately we know metaphorically strike us. Things that we know won't actually prop us up as we put our weight on them, as we lean on them. And yet in the moment, in the places that we find ourselves that are difficult, we often lean on things that, that we have no business trusting our weight, our weight to. And that's what God's people have done here. They have leaned, and that's really a, a sense of leaning against a wall or a pillar for support. They have leaned on the Assyrians. But what, what's going to happen? They're going to realize the folly of that, and they are going to lean on the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel, this rich word that Isaiah uses to describe God and His majesty and His holiness, all that God is, and it is the Holy One of Israel, that God's people belong to this One who is holy. And instead of leaning on all the things that might seem to prop up their existence, instead they're going to return to the Holy One of Israel and put their weight on Him. But there's some difficult words in the verses that follow. Even as we see a remnant returning and to the mighty God, the one who can save them, in verse 22, we see, for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Now, those are hard words to hear. Destruction is decreed. It's talking about the fact that there will be punishment, there will be consequences for God's people as they have done the things that are against his, his law. And it, it puts destruction being decreed, overflowing with righteousness together. We might think of destruction and righteousness isn't the first thing that comes to mind. And yet here, God's righteousness, His actions, His holiness on display is described as righteousness overflowing. Isaiah doesn't really try to figure it out for us, but simply declares that what God does is, is right and good, that we are his people in need of, need of grace. In a sense, what he does is he says, even though they were as numerous as the sand of the sea, which is a promise that was given to Abraham, right, that his descendants would be like this, it doesn't mean that there aren't responsibilities to follow through on what God has declared they should be and do. We see a similar occurrence in the gospel of Luke. In Luke 3, there's this picture of uh, Jesus working with some religious leaders, and they um, sort of say, hey, we don't need you. We have Abraham as our father. And Jesus' response is, out of these very stones, I could raise up children for Abraham. And then he says these words, and he, he says that the axe is already at the root of the tree. Now, how do we put all of that together? The reality that Jesus would, in the New Testament, tell these people that ultimately it wasn't their standing as children of Abraham that saved them. And here, even though they are the sands of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. It points us to the need for a Savior. It points us to the reality that these people here, even as they're struggling to follow through on who God is and what he calls them to be and to be his people, all of that, that they still need Jesus. There's something that is still needed here. And this text anticipates the reality that we need Jesus. God's people in Isaiah here, 
in a sense, hear from God that he says it will be difficult to navigate a changing world, but I will be with you. And we hear a, a similar reality ringing through the rest of Scripture that he says to us that we are in exile. The passage we read from Second Peter this morning notes that we are in exile. God considers our current existence exile, and then in heaven, in the new heavens, we have our full citizenship. And so like these people who experience difficulty, we too experience difficulty. But what do we do? We lean in to who God is. I think that's a a beautiful picture here of actually putting your weight on who God is in the midst of exile, on his character, on who he is, on the Holy One of Israel, to know that he actually is able to hold your weight, to put your weight fully on Jesus. And how do we do this? It adds in verse 20, we do this in truth. Now, what does that mean? In truth, in a sense, it's talking about in faithfulness, but it also has, I think, a, a note here that even as we lean on him as the one who is, who is worthy of our trust, worthy of our faith, we do so in a response that is, is faithful to him. We say, he is worth it. I'm going to stay with him. But we also know that if we're going to put our faith in something, it must be worthwhile putting our, our weight on it. And as I was thinking about that, I, I remembered this little excerpt from uh, Francis Schaeffer. Now, if you don't know who Francis Schaeffer is, he was a, a, a significant thinker 50, 60 years ago in evangelical Christianity. And one of the things he did very well was to ask the question that we're asking this morning of how do we actually live in a world that is changing? His context was a little different than ours now, but he, he posed those same questions. If the world is changing, what do we do? How do we live? And in that midst of that, he had his own, you could call it a, a crisis of faith. And I'm going to read this that he said to his wife, wife Edith. It says, I feel really torn to pieces by the lack of reality, the lack of seeing the results the Bible talks about, which should be seen in the Lord's people. I'm not talking only about people I'm working with, but I'm not satisfied with myself. It seems that the only honest thing to do is to rethink, re-examine the whole matter of Christianity. Is it true? I need to go back to my agnosticism and start at the beginning. Now, that's not what I'm advising all of us to do, to throw out all of Christianity this morning, but functionally, all of us have done that at some point in our lives. And if we haven't, we need to, to come down and say, is what Jesus is describing through his word really true? And if it is, that I'm actually going to put my weight on it. I'm actually going to lean on who God is and say, yes, this is, this is true. In a sense, what this passage doesn't call for is any sort of fence-sitting or hedging of bets, but calls us to lean truly and fully into who God is. And if you know the rest of Schaefer's story, you know that that is what he did. As he examined what is true in God's word, and he looked at philosophy, he looked at all sorts of things, but, but he realized that this was true. And so he based his entire life on it and knew that God was capable of of holding him up, as it were, in a world that is changing. And so for you and I, we we might come with hearts that are full of questions this morning, come to God, and and maybe we've, we've asked the question, is it really foolish to follow Christianity through the rest of my life? Is it really worth it? The challenge of this passage is to ask yourself what is true what is right and what is good, and see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we can actually put our weight on him. And as we do that, it it, it does require us to ask the question, what else sort of gets in the way of putting our weight on Jesus? 
And we can put in all the, all the things in our culture that will try to prop it up. It's not the Assyrians for us, but we have a, we have a laundry list of things that we could, we could put in there. And I don't, don't say this with any, any shame, but as the Bible will talk about where we put our weight and what we lean on, it really comes down to wisdom and foolishness. What God's people have done up to this point is, is they have been fools. And often, we and I, you and I are, are fools as well, as we seek to prop up our existence with any number of alternatives to the gospel and to Jesus. Christian author Ray Ortland said this, that we are more susceptible to alien saviors, spirits, and gospels than we know. There's a desire in our hearts to prop up our existence with anything besides Jesus. But here's the invitation to lean on the Holy One of Israel, to lean on Him. And that's what God's people do. And there's a, a note really of rejoicing as they come and they, they return, even with repentance, turning from what they have done and turning now to the God who will sustain them, to the Christ who is their rock and is our rock. Now, as we do this, as we lean on Christ, as we sort of understand, okay, the world is changing, what do we do? We lean on Christ. Now, how long do we have to, to do that? Because as we lean on Christ, it doesn't mean that the realities of the world that we're in suddenly just go away. And that doesn't happen for the people here in this text either. In verse 24, we see that they are actually afraid. It says, do not be afraid of the Assyrians, which implies that they are afraid of the Assyrians, that there are things out there in this world that are difficult, painful, wrong, and evil. And what are we going to do when we encounter those things? Well, he says, do not be afraid. And then he gives them some rationale for that in verse 25, where he says, for in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. A very little while. He asks them to wait. Not a long time and, and not an eternity, but a very little while. Now, if you've you know, been around the church for a while, you know what's coming. You know that God's timetable sometimes isn't quite like ours. We hear a very little while, uh, and if you tell a child dinner is ready in a very little while, they're not leaving the kitchen, right? They're staying. They're hungry. They're ready to go. And we hear that, and we say, okay, great, this is a very little while. And, and then we realize that it's, it's longer than maybe we, we want it to be. And yet, over and over again in Scripture, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, will, will instruct us that as we wait, it is a very little while. Where do we see that? Even in the end of Scripture, Revelation very end of the book, what does Jesus say? I'm coming soon. And, and we hear that and we say, but it's been 2,000 some years and, and you're still saying that. But it's the very posture that God instructs his exiles to live with, an anticipation, an understanding that we actually can say these words truthfully, that this isn't some sort of practical joke played on us that it's going to take longer than we thought, but it will be a very little while. We know from 2 Peter 3, verse 9, that God does not, is not slow in keeping his promises, as some count slowness. And that some count slowness, that's, that's usually you and I. We say, God, you've been a little slow. Could you speed up your clock? But in the midst of this, his, his presence, his care for his people, is this reality that it will not be a very long while but it will be a very little while. Maybe you noted this also, though after that he says, my fury will come to an end. It's implying that in this moment there is judgment against his people. There's judgment against his people. But then it turns towards the Assyrians. It turns away and his 
anger will be directed to their destruction. Now, is God just being sort of capricious here? Being angry at one person and then angry at another group of people? I think the way we understand both the desire that, or the, the call that we have to wait and the anger here is to look to Jesus again and see that he is the one that makes it so that in a very little while, God's fury is not even coming on us, but it's resting on his son, Jesus. We need to see the anger and the wrath that is justifiably poured out against sin here as ultimately being poured out against Jesus. So we hear this not sort of waiting to dodge God and his anger, but rather looking with hope to the one who says, I am coming soon, even in a very little while. Now, I know we hear that and we're impatient. Maybe I've told some of you, since we moved to Bernie about four and a half years ago, my commute has doubled. It used to be three minutes. Now it's six. They keep adding stoplights, and, and, and it makes me impatient sometimes. I sit there, and it's like, I didn't used to have to wait here for this. And it's, it's, a, it's a minuscule amount of time, but that's often how we, we understand even passages like this. And we say, God, would you just hurry up? Reminded of how the early church often looked at this. And, and the early church often had a tendency, maybe wrongly, to, to glorify martyrs, but we get some very vivid accounts of what happened with, with their, their deaths. And one of them is from an individual named Agatha. And there's this beautiful little picture of how she described her death. She said, I'm dancing to my death. And as she was brought to her death, she said the pain that she was experiencing was as if they were piping a dance tune for her. Now, is that fully commendable? We could unpack that and say there are some things that maybe we can push back against, but the very posture of seeing sort of eternity, the eternal life that she knew she was headed to, sort of just merging into her present life now, I think is reflective as how we live as exiles. Not that we have to have a martyr complex, but to see, as people in church history have seen before us, that time really is short and that eternity is really forever. And to actually see that a very little while in God's time, ultimately, and when we experience eternity, will be a very little while for us as well. I say that knowing the, the real pain that we have often as we, we wait. And also to ask us the question of what are, what are we actually afraid of, right? He gives us this instruction in light of fear that you and I experience. All of us have fears this morning. We walked in here, and nobody has maybe those things written down to share with everybody else, but there are things that we're afraid of. Maybe those are big sociological changes in society, but maybe they're just closer to home. You're fearful that your grandkids might have a far more difficult life than you ever had. Maybe you're afraid that the scan will come back positive. Maybe you're afraid of failing at work, being a parent, being a spouse, at algebra, whatever it might be, there, there are real fears that you and I walk around with, and, and somehow in God's mercy and His grace and His providence, He takes all of those, and what does He do? He says, in a very little while, I will be with you. Not that He's not with us now, but He, he moves us with these words to look to Christ and to say that there is grace for our failure, there is grace in the midst of all of this that we struggle with. And when we fail to identify our fear, oftentimes what we end up with is cynicism. 
we become very cynical. When we don't identify our fear, when we don't say, this is what I'm afraid of, and this is how I'm navigating against it, we sort of end up in this spot of just being cynical and saying, nothing is really going to change. Sometimes cynicism is described as a cul-de-sac. I don't know if any of you lived on a cul-de-sac, but it, it's just in a circle, right? It stays there. And cynicism just sort of sits there, and our fear can give rise to it. And I think often as we look at a changing world, cynicism probably is our default posture. This is never going to change. I don't know what God's doing. This passage doesn't allow us to fall into that place. It doesn't allow us to set up shop in the cul-de-sac of cynicism, but instead calls us to wait a very little while as we lean on Christ in his fullness, knowing that he is a God who is not far off, but a God who is near at hand. Now, how do we know this is all true? We get some hope. We get a picture at the end of this. I don't know if anybody plays chess here. If you play chess, you know that some people get really into chess, and then when you play them, they say, oh, that's what you're doing. I had this experience. I was playing chess, and I, I moved a few pieces in the early game, and the person says, oh, you're playing the king's gambit. I was like, oh, okay. And, and this guy, you know, kind of knew how the rest of the game was going to unfold because I'd played like three or four chess pieces on the board. That's sort of what we're let in on here. We get to be that chess mastermind who can see the end from the beginning. And we see it in verse 27 through following. We get this this picture of the yoke that is put on God's people breaking because of the fat, which is a weird expression. It's really this this picture of an ox that is so well fed that he just sort of grows and finally busts out of the yoke that has been put on him. And then we see how that happens. We see this progression of the Assyrians in verse 28 through about verse 32. And really, if you picture it on a map, they're coming from the north and they're going south. And nothing is stopping them. They're skirting around some of the strongholds, but they're going straight for Jerusalem. And they're moving with great speed. They put their baggage in a town of Michmash, so they can move more quickly. It seems that they even take a, a circuitous route through the mountains and come within about 15 miles of Jerusalem. Now, this may be recording an actual attack of Assyria, but it more likely is just a general picture of several invasions that Assyria will attempt to make on Jerusalem. And what happens with all of this? As people are fleeing for safety, we see in verse 32, the very day he, Assyria, will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist. Now, picture this scene. It's really Assyria poised, 15 miles, nothing in between them. They're about to take out Jerusalem. They're about to win. And all the fears, all of the anxieties of God's people seem to be about to come exactly as they thought they would come about. But what happens? As he shakes his fist and victory, it would seem in this moment, at the mountain of the daughter of Zion at the hill of Jerusalem. And then we know what happens we get to see the end game from the beginning. Verse 33, behold, which is just a way of saying look at what God is to do. Look, the Lord of God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. This towering Assyrian force compared later to even the trees of Lebanon is brought low. And God's people, as they are about to experience some of these things, as this is future foretelling, future prophecy that Isaiah is recording, he lets them in on the end game. So this is what's going to happen. They're going to come this close. They're almost going to take it. But in the end, that shaken fist is not a shaken fist of victory. 
but it's one of frustration and consternation that God has preserved his, his people, has preserved his city of Jerusalem. And they're cut down. They're brought low. Last summer, my family had a chance to go up to Canada, visit my, my parents up there, and we went hiking in the Rockies. And I went to a national park that had, a few years ago, had a, a forest fire go through it. And so I took our girls, we did this hike that my family has done frequently, and normally it's this very tree-covered hike. Lots of trees, it's kind of picturesque, but this time you are just on the face of the mountain, because all of the trees were gone. There was nothing there, it was desolate. And maybe you've driven through the mountains, maybe you've seen where there's either clear cutting or a fire has come through, and, and it's just this picture of, of really kind of desolation, right? That's what we see here. All this that the Assyrians thought would be their victory ends up being destruction. It ends up being entirely gone. In our own day and age, evil can seem relentless. I think when we look at this progression of the Assyrians, we say, that's kind of what my life might look like. Situations, circumstances, whatever they may be, may seem unstoppable. And yet, somehow, in God and His, His mercy and His, His providence doesn't negate the pain, doesn't negate the fact that they will experience difficulty and danger, but He points to Himself as the one who brings ultimate deliverance. That the pride of the Assyrians never really will stand, it never will amount to anything, because God will be the majestic one who brings about redemption. So I think that is instructive for us as we think about our lives and what is changing and all of those things. We can know, like verse 27 says, that the yoke that we have, the yoke of sin, the yoke of slavery, through Jesus has been broken. We know those words from Matthew chapter 11 that he asks us to take his yoke upon us. And that's, that's what we get to experience even now as, as we wait for some of this, as there are still painful things, as, as we wait for the fullness of the shaken fist to stop, we know that we still have a God who is, who is with us, who has given us his yoke, one that is good for us. And so we can lean on him. We can trust him, even as we wait a little while, knowing that even as the world changes, our God never will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we together acknowledge this morning that there are many places in our, our world, in our life, in our country that cause us to fear. In those moments, Lord, would you allow us not to give way to cynicism, but you, through your grace and your mercy, would you show us what it is to lean on you, to wait a little while, and to know that you win the victory in the end. Would you set our hope and our eyes on Christ, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.